Heavenly Father, we thank you for loving us. And in our hearts, we pause just for a moment to ponder the reality of that. Because we know that you know us better than we know ourselves. And we don't find anything within ourselves that would cause you to love us. So this love must be rooted deeply in your heart. And we are grateful, God, that by loving us, you make us lovely and loving. And I pray, Lord, that you would never stop that work of transforming us and conforming us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. God is good. All the time. time. Sin is in the news again. I have noticed that it's usually in the news if you read closely enough, though it's not always recognized as sin. But I'm particularly interested in the fact that the church has been talking about sin again. And it it may sound odd to you, but I think that's a good thing. I think the church needs to talk about sin because sin is a reality. The Pope has added seven more sins to the seven mortal sins Remember the seven mortal sins were pride, envy, gluttony, greed, lust, wrath, and sloth. The new list includes pollution, genetic engineering, obscene wealth, drugs, abortion, pedophilia, causing social injustice. Even more recent is a survey by Ellison that showed that 87% of people in the United States actually believe that there is such a thing as sin. And they define sin in that survey as something that is almost always considered wrong. The thing about sin is that it's, it's not almost always wrong, it's just always wrong. And I want to preach about sin today and I'm just going to tip my hand at the very beginning and tell you I'm against it. I'm, I'm always against it. It's just a sort of, um, but I want to be clear about that because um, as I read that survey in Ellison, I noticed that 81% of people said they are against adultery. They recognize that as a sin. I'm worried about the 19%. 74% say that racism is a sin. I'm worried about the 26% who don't think that it is a sin. But the majority of Americans do not believe any longer that premarital immorality is a sin. And 30%, only 30% believe that gambling is wrong at all. I want us to be clear this morning that whatever ever was sin, still is sin. I thought we ought to look at maybe an earlier list, because the new lists maybe are not all encompassing enough, and I'm not sure that God is ready to put up a sin for a vote. It's not really a democracy in that sense. Sin is that which breaks the heart of God. Sin is that which crucified Jesus. Sin is that which separates us from God. It is that abyss, that chasm that we cannot cross on our own. And we we dare not take sin lightly. So I wanted us to look at an earlier list. The Apostle Paul has a list, for instance, in Romans chapter 1 that tells us something about sin. It's not his only list. It's not exhaustive. But it will give us, I think, maybe a measuring point for our own attitudes about sin we started last week with the love of God as we thought about this doctrine, this teaching of salvation. And that's the right place to start. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But unless and until we believe that we, for instance, we ourselves have sinned, and unless we turn from that sin, 
we can never experience the salvation that God sent Jesus Christ to give to us. And at all costs, I want you to receive that salvation. I do not want a a single person in the sound of my voice to miss this. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word? Romans, this great treatise, a letter to a church, but a treatise on salvation. And Paul starts with his gospel. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made To look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. And therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women, were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, He gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. You, you therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you toward repentance? You may be seated. Paul didn't start the church in Rome, but he was really trying to get something started in the church at Rome. It was his ambition to preach the gospel in Rome. He preached everywhere else and he wanted to preach in Rome. It was his great desire. If only he could get to Rome. Like, like perhaps an artist who would love to go 
to the Louvre or, or a singer who would love to sing at Carnegie Hall. Paul could just imagine if he could get to the cultural center of his day, the political center of the world and proclaim the good news then he might have a, an audience from people who would recognize that the good news is that a righteousness from God has been revealed. Not a righteousness of our own, but a righteousness, he says, that comes by faith. From beginning to end, it is by faith, as Habakkuk wrote, and Paul loved to quote, the righteous will live by faith. The only way we will live is by faith. Martin Luther, Luther discovered that one day in a tower. And it not only changed his life, but it changed Christianity in his day. It began a reformation in the church because suddenly he realized that we were not saved by our own righteousness or by our own striving for righteousness, but by the imputed righteousness of Christ. We believe in Him and turn from our sins and He forgives us and makes us His own people and progressively conforms us and changes us until we become like Christ. And when Luther saw that, it just changed everything for him. I wonder, have you seen that? Because if we don't get verses 16 and 17, then we're stuck in verses 18 and following, not with the righteousness of God that's been revealed, but with the wrath of God that's been revealed. And the truth is, we prefer not to think about the wrath of God. It's hard to imagine. I, every survey you see, they say, I, I want to think about God as a loving God. I don't want to think about God's wrath at all. How can God be loving and also angry? And my answer to that comes from a book that I'm reading by Tim Keller. Uh, he has an interesting chapter in his book called The Reason for God. And in it, he says, uh, anger is not the opposite of love. Hatred is the opposite of love. And you can be loving and angry. If you really love somebody, you'll be angry at their hurt and their pain. Even if it's self-inflicted pain, it hurts you and you, you become angry about that because you just want so much more than that for them. And that's the way God is. He just He wants so much more for us than this world has to offer than our sin would ever allow us to experience. And so, yes, God is angry at sin. And yes, God loves us. And yes, He stopped at nothing to reach us. And yes, He would rather die than live without us. And so He sent His only Son into the world. But unless and until we recognize the utter sinfulness of our sin and our utter inability to save ourselves, we'll never really look for His help and find His salvation. And in a culture that has lost its sense of responsibility, we must recover responsibility for our own lives so that we can recognize that we can't save ourselves. And we have come to this doctrine that is prominent in what I would call the cultural Christianity of our day that is really sort of a moral therapy. That is, it's not so much about heaven someday, but about the here and now. And, and somehow, if you'll just try a little harder and work a little better, you can make your life better here. And after all, all God wants is for your life to be better here. And the problem with that whole equation is that it comes back to me and it's all dependent on self. And my problem is self because sin at its rudimentary level is self-centeredness. Sin is pride. Sin is the idea that I can fix my own problems and that, and, and that God just wants me to work out my own problems. But if in fact I can solve all my own problems, then I never understand why Jesus had to die on the cross. I love the ending of that movie, 
amazing grace. It's a historical account of William Wilberforce and his pastor John Newton, who, by the way, wrote the song Amazing Grace. And, and early in, in, in the story, Wilberforce goes to his pastor and says, I know you used to be a slave trader, and if you could write down all the names and the ships and the ports, then I could use that to overturn the slave trade in England, which was William Wilberforce's great passion. And in fact, uh, John Newton says, I can't do that. I can't remember all of those things because... They bring back 20,000 ghosts of people who died on my ships. And I don't want to think about that anymore. But late in the movie, we discover that Newton calls Wilberforce back and he is now blind. Newton is now blind, but he has this stack of papers and he says, here it is. Here are the accounts. Here are the names and the ports and the ships. All of my memories. Use these Notes to overturn slavery in our country. And then he makes this great statement. He says, I forget many things these days, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. And somehow I know that there is unanimous assent in the church perhaps. And I could even go out in culture and I could get a lot of people even outside the church who acknowledge that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. But the part of saying I am a great sinner is sometimes more difficult for us. Because in our minds we relegate sinfulness and bad sin to those other people. It's like chapter 1 where he says over and over again, they... They keep doing this, they, and the more we talk about sin and they, we're comfortable. But did you notice in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, and you. And it's an uncomfortable change from third person to second person. To say you have sinned can be offensive in our culture. Because we, we automatically assume that if somebody thinks we have sinned, that they, they hate us and not just our behavior. And somehow the church must recover the truth that we can love sinners and simultaneously hate sin. This is the, the core, the foundation of the truth which leads us to our need, to our greatest need for a Savior. So notice first that as God reveals His power and His presence in the world, and, and by the way, He says all that we need to know about God can be seen in nature, that in fact there is this general revelation so that we are without excuse, He says, if we say, well, I just didn't know there was a God. We, we can't plead ignorance because God has manifested His presence. I saw it yesterday after a gloomy, cloudy, wintry feeling kind of morning that fit our emotions as we gathered for the funeral service for Wayne Talbert. And then I went up to my study and sometime in the afternoon I emerged uh, from my cocoon and looked outside and the sky was azure blue and the radiant resplendent light and and in my mind, I immediately thought, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky shout. And anybody who has ears to hear can hear it. They are saying, God is in His heaven. God is the creator of the ends of the earth. And I saw it as I often see it in creation. And I am grateful for beauty and for images of beauty that remind us of the greatness of our God. And he says, you, you can see God in the world, but the truth is, and you need to hear this, God sees us in the world. And what he sees, as he describes it, starting with verse 21, is sin. Some bad trades that we've made. He uses the word exchange. You've exchanged, he says, the uh, image of the immortal God for images made by human hands. He's talking about idolatry, isn't he? 
And he says, there are idols in the world. People make these images and worship these false images. And we saw that. We see it frequently, for instance, in a video we saw this weekend. There was a Buddha in Myanmar where our missionaries went. And the people were bowing down to the Buddha. And the Buddha is an example of an idol. But I don't want us to think for a moment when he says they make these images that we are well beyond that in our own country or in our own culture. In fact, I want to say to you that the American idol is not a singer. That idolatry is alive and well in our country. You see it in the way we treat things. And the things that you love, the things that get your attention, the things you think about before you go to sleep at night and before you wake, when you wake up in the morning, the things that dominate your thoughts, the things you spend your money on, the things you give your attention to, these can easily become the things that you worship. You can begin to worship the created things instead of the Creator. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol-making factories. And then he gives an example of immorality and says, for instance, take the good gift that God gives us of intimacy for a husband and a wife, the most wonderful, beautiful gift of God. It's not bad, it's a good gift of God. But you and I know people who have made that their God and have exchanged the Creator for this created gift of intimacy, so that is the dominating force in their lives. And they become addicted to that, and that becomes an issue in their lives. And as he describes it and talks about the issue of homosexuality, you understand, in, in Paul's world, 14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were homosexual. Lest we think that that's only a sin of, of modern days, but it is, by the way, whatever ever was a sin is still a sin. And if the Apostle Paul were standing here, he wouldn't stand before us and say, well, science has disproved that that homosexuality is a sin. In fact, he, he would say to you, whatever ever was sin is still sin. And science continues to study this and the results, as I understand it, are inconclusive. But whatever is decided, whatever genetic predispositions and propensities we have and we shouldn't be surprised as those who are descendants of Adam who fell from the garden we shouldn't be surprised if we have propensities and predispositions towards sin but we are still responsible for our behavior and we must choose to be obedient to God and so he says there is this sin of of immorality and the worst thing as he goes down the list is he starts talking about sins that I've committed Did you see it there in verses 29 and following? I mean, as long as he's talking about murder, well, maybe we feel comfortable. But then he starts talking about gossips and slanderers and the insolent and the arrogant and the boastful and those who invent ways of doing evil. People who have a patent on new sins. Who disobey their parents. Would you have put that on the list? Slanderers and God-haters and... Senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless people, all them, they, 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 chapter 2, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse, he says. In other words, sin isn't just their problem, it's our problem. There is no, there is no place over there somewhere where the sinners are, but the line of evil, Solzhenitsyn said, runs through every human heart. And so we find ourselves in this situation of sin. And I'm not telling you this so that you will live your life in regret and misery and guilt and shame. That's not the point of this sermon. The point is, though, that if we're trying to lead people into relationship with God and the church never talks about sin, then we can never lead people into relationship with a Savior because people who don't believe that they've sinned don't know that they need a Savior. And so maybe nobody else wants to talk about sin anymore, but the church must continue to talk about sin. 
so that we can understand why we are so grateful for a Savior who came to take away our sin. And He talks about our immorality and He talks about uh, our impenitence that those who do these sins not only continue to do them but also approve of those who practice them. And I read this week about Ian McKellen, this uh, actor who's been in a number of very prominent movies. And he said every time he goes into a hotel, he opens the drawer there and pulls out the Gideon Bible and turns to Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22, which condemns homosexuality. And he said he tears it out of the Bible. He said, I've torn it out of hundreds of Bibles. And when they asked him why, he said, I'm afraid somebody will wake up in the middle of the night with insomnia and read the Bible and read that and believe that homosexuality is wrong. So I'm going to continue to deface the Scriptures. And what I want to say to you about that is, it is possible, I suppose, if you and I could just go through our Bibles and find all the sins that we want to continue to commit and tear out all those pages, we might be able to find a way uh, to tear those things out of Scripture, but we could not tear them out of the fabric, the reality of, of our world, that sin is with us. And in fact, we don't really break God's law, but we break ourselves over God's law. And God is not being unloving to say that kind of life will lead you to destruction. In fact, He is being very loving and kind. In fact, in God's love, what He does as He describes it is He not only reveals our sin, but He releases us to our sin. And we think, well, that doesn't sound very loving at all. When it says in verse 24 and verse 26 and verse 28, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. He allowed them to go where they wanted to go. Why? Because God is not the, the cosmic cop. He's not the moral police who's up there pointing his finger at us saying, now I want you to try to do better. That's not the gospel. God gives us over to sin because he knows that when we continue down that path, there may come a, a point when we recognize that his very kindness and love to us will lead us to repentance if we will let his love lead us to that. God gives us over to sin, not because he wants us to sin, but because at the end of the day, hell is sort of the ultimate monument to human freedom. People, everybody wants to talk about heaven. Everybody's writing books about heaven right now. I don't know anybody who's writing a book about hell right now. But I want you to know that the scripture talks a lot about it. And what it says about it is that hell is sort of the natural consequence of the choices we make. It's God just letting us go our own way. And if you want to talk about where it is or what it's like, I would just say you can see glimpses of hell in your own sinful impulses, in our own addictions, we see that if I follow down that path, it will lead me to destruction. Well, that's the road to hell. And I read this week that 65% of Americans, United States of Americans, I need to be careful, 65% of the people in the United States say that they believe they're going to heaven. And only 0.05 of 1% of Americans surveyed said they believe that they're going to hell. That's just to be clear, five in 10,000, only one in 2,000 believe that they're going to hell. But Jesus said there is this wide road that leads to destruction. And lots of people are on that road. And there's a narrow road that leads to heaven. And very few people find that road. And I'm going to take Jesus math over American math on this and tell you that I believe some people who think they're going to heaven are deceived. Because if my relationship with Christ does not cause me to turn from sin to Christ, then I have not really come to Christ at all. I cannot include Christ in my life without subtracting sin from my life because when the Spirit of holiness comes to live within me, He starts doing enormous and amazing wide-scale house cleaning. 
And He begins to eliminate and eradicate things from my life. And if you and I are not progressively growing in our love for God and holiness every day, if we are not growing in our hatred for sin, that would be a sign that there is no root of the Savior within our lives. Because I'm telling you, where He is, He does not take sin lightly and His people will not take sin lightly. In fact, we will come to the truth of of what the Scriptures say, that God's presence in the world reveals that we have an enormous problem. Did you hear about uh, Jacob Carviel, this young man in Paris who kind of worked his way up from the bottom in a bank? And, and, but in January of this year, it was revealed that he had defrauded his customers. He had embezzled, if you can imagine this, not $7 million, but $7 billion. Just to be clear with you, that is half of the gold and currency available in all of France. And he had gotten it for himself until they caught him. And I was thinking in that moment when he realized he was caught. Maybe his first thought was, do you think maybe he was thinking, I'm in a lot of trouble. I would go beyond that and say he might have thought, I need a lawyer. I need like a really good lawyer. But as I thought about all of his mistake is all wrapped up in things that are perishing. But if you think about it, the the court that you and I will face is not the court of public opinion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 says, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives. And the only way we will be able to do that, I'm going to tell you, we don't just need a good lawyer, we need a Savior. In that moment, we will not be able to say, well, you know, but my heredity and, and, my, and my environment and the things that happened and, you know, and the devil made me. Let me tell you something. As long as you and I are not recovering responsibility for our own behavior, we're going to be in a lot of trouble. But if you and I can come to the truth that we have sinned and Christ has come to save us, then there is hope for people like us. And we can be delivered from hell. It's, it's like... Calvin Miller tells in his little book, The Singer, when somebody says to God, how can you be loving and send me to hell? And God says, I would never send you to hell. But if you choose to go there, I can never keep you out. To become a follower of Christ is to turn from sin. And so what he says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, is that God's work in our lives, He's being very kind to us. He's not destroying us. God's not wiping us off the face of the earth because of our sin. And the reason He's not is because He's giving us a chance. He's not willing, He's not willing, 2 Peter 3, verse 9, that anybody should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But to come to Christ, we have to come to repentance. And repentance, the, the Hebrew word shuv is to turn. It's in that old shaker song. To turn, turn will be our delight. Till by turning, turning, we come around right. It means, as we sang, that that God must change our hearts. For us to become Christians, He has to change our hearts. He has to turn us from sin. I love the way John Music uh, welcomed our guests in the 8 o'clock service. He said, now we've got this this guest card here, but we want, we want our members to fill it out too because maybe you've had a change of address or a change of email address or you've changed your phone number. And then he said, if you've changed anything in your life, please write it down on the, on the sheet of paper. Well, that's the question I want to ask you. Since you became a follower of Jesus Christ, has anything changed? Because I'm telling you, if you're a follower of Jesus, something's going to change. Because He changes us. He transforms us. This is our hope that we will come to repentance and if we come to repentance and turn from our sin then we will discover that His grace is sufficient for sinners like us and like John Newton we will say 
I don't remember everything, but I remember this. I am a great sinner. I'm not just a sinner. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. I'm a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. And it is His kindness that leads us to repentance. So there's no sense in you and I saying, well, I know that those other people need that. I love what they, they interviewed. Did you see this interview of T-Mac recently? And they, they, uh, they asked him about Dikembe Mutombo, these players for the Rockets. And, and I love Dikembe. He's such a great defender. And he, he said, you know, the thing about Dikembe is he's 40-something years old. I'm not sure anybody actually knows. And he's been playing in the league 20-something years. And if you ask him, he has never once in all those years, in all the games he's played, ever committed a single foul. <laughs> Remember the old basketball players, you know, when the referee would catch them, they would raise their hand? Dikembe raises two hands. He goes, me, he never, he doesn't believe he's ever, and, I, and Dikembe is a wonderful human being, but I want you to hear this. That may be one way to play basketball, but that would be a lousy way to live our lives, to say, I, it was him, it was her, it was them, it was my parents' fault, it was the chemical fault, it was, no, we must, we must come clean with God and just acknowledge that we have sinned. And when we do, we discover that depravity. He says, God gave them over to a depraved mind. It means not that you and I have always been as bad as we ever could be. If I said that, you would go, no, that's not true. And of course that's not true. The point is that we've never been as good as we could have been. And here's the important point of when he says depravity. When you hear somebody say total depravity of humankind. Here's the point. We can't fix it ourselves. Harry Blameyer says, there is nothing in the Christian life that you can buy in the do it for, for yourself section. Not one thing. I want you to understand, it wasn't like 99%. It wasn't like, it wasn't like Stacey King saying, I remember that night when Michael Jordan and I scored 71 points. He scored 69 and I scored 2. It wasn't like my golf game this week when I played for the first time in four years and my team inexplicably won the tournament. I only got there for the last five golf holes. Some of you have seen me play golf, you know. And I only got there for the last five holes and we won. And with the other ones, I stepped up and got my certificate for $30 in the golf pro shop and all that. But you could ask my fellow players. I didn't do one thing to help. In, fa- in fact, in fact, one of the guys I was playing with played in the Pro-Am the next day of the Houston Shell Open and won with Davis Love. And I'm pretty sure he gave Davis Love a lot more help than I gave him the day before. My point is, we can't fix ourselves. Without God's help, there's no hope. But the good news is, God is being kind to us. Verse 4. He's being tolerant. He's being patient. Why? Because God doesn't want anybody to perish. And when I preach about hell, it's not because I want anybody to go there, but because I want everybody to escape that place. And the hope is that God's kindness will lead us away from that. Look, it's, it's Joseph Bailey, the preacher and poet's story about his son, Tim, who in his teenage years, imagine this, was rebellious and prodigal and moved out and moved into a house in Chicago and was living a prodigal lifestyle. And one night, Joe got the call that his son was in jail. So in the middle of the night, imagine Chicago when the wind comes off the lake. It is the coldest place on the face of the earth. And he got up in the middle of a night like that and drove down to Cook County Jail to get his son out of jail and said, I'm here for Tim Bailey. And said, we don't have any Tim Bailey. And so he went to the city jail and he wasn't there. And he went to another jail and another jail. And finally at 4 o'clock in the morning, he drove up to the house where his son was supposed to be living and climbed the stairs and opened the door And there was his son lying on the hard wood floor in a sleeping bag. And there were so many things he wanted to say to his son. But when he walked over to him, his compassion for his son caused him just to reach down and kiss his son on the cheek and walk out the door. Not long after that, his son came home for a meal and another meal. And then 
went to church with his family and went to the front and, and committed his life to Christ and then said, I want to be a preacher. And today, his son Tim is a preacher in Indiana. It's a great story. But years later, Joe said to his son Tim, when they could finally talk about it, what happened? What made you come back home? He said, that di- Dad, that night when my friends played that, that prank phone call on you and called, I knew when you came to my house, you'd been looking for me all over Chicago. And I wasn't asleep, but I pretended as hard as I could to be asleep because I didn't want to hear what you had to say. And it was your love that brought me back home. And this is our story. It is true that we have sinned. We are great sinners. It is also true that Jesus Christ is a great Savior. Look, if our greatest need had been information, God would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, He would have sent us a scientist. If, if our greatest need had been money, God would have sent an economist. If our greatest need had been entertainment, God would have sent us a performer. But our greatest need was salvation. And so God sent us a great Savior because we are great sinners. And whatever you forget, remember that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for salvation in Jesus Christ. Help us to receive your free gift of salvation through Christ our Lord. Help us to turn to you and believe. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.